I think I'm on. There it is. Read the slide. I give up trying to tell you what to do, which is really good to come up here right before you're about to preach. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, this morning, we are continuing our, our sermon series here on Micah, talking about walking humbly with our God. Um, again, this, this is pulled from probably Micah's most famous verse, which we'll actually get to next week, where he reminds us that we are to do God's justice, love the way God loved, and to walk humbly with God. Um, also, this morning, we've reached the center of Micah, which is really, really significant. Um, it took us a little bit easier than the answer of how many licks did it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop. Um, I thought I would date myself um, by referring to that. The rest of you can check it out on YouTube later. But I found out that commercial debut in 1982, which is way before I was born. So I don't feel dated anymore, you know? Um, if you don't remember the commercial, it's great, right? There's a little kid going around asking how many licks does it take to get to the center. And by, by the time he gets to the owl, the owl goes lick one, lick two, and then he bites it, right? I'm like, that owl's my hero, right? Because I wondered those things. And, and for all of those of you who have college students or are paying for college students, I want you to know that the good people at NYU researched this. They invented a machine, and the answer they came up with was 1,000 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. Not to be outdone, Purdue University, those wonderful boilermakers, they also invented the machine, and they got 364 licks. So I don't know if it was more power or not, um, but what was even more impressive is they got a bunch of college students to get their own Tootsie Roll Pop, and they licked it, and they did it in 262. Mind-blowing things we're learning this morning. Finally, the University of Michigan to kind of balance it all out. They invented their machine, and they did it in 411, right? So, Micah, you just read three chapters, and you get to the center. So it's a little bit easier, right? But why is this significant? It's significant because unlike the Tootsie Roll Pop, where we don't really know how long it takes to get to the center, Micah 5 or 4 and 5 is more like an Oreo cookie, right? You can probably go with that with me, right? The Oreo cookie, if you're like the good people of the world, right? You don't, you know, do the, the, the uncivilized thing of just biting into it, right? You, you, you pull it apart, right? And, and you get to the creamy middle, the center, the good stuff, right? The center is the most important part. And in Micah, the center is the most important message. And that's tricky for us because, again, we want to read the Bible as isolated or what does God say to me today and, and all that. Or we even want to read it as chronological. But again, the significance of the center is that the scriptures were written on scrolls, right? And, and unlike most of us, right, like the people in Micah's time didn't have things we called punctuation, right? Uh, the, the scripture was written in caps lock. So it was like someone screaming at you all the time. So no punctuation, caps lock, and it was rolled up in a scroll. And I know a lot of us maybe struggle to read our Bible daily. Now imagine if that's what you're reading. Ancient Hebrew, caps lock, no punctuation, no chapter, no verses, right? So when these people wrote the Bible, they're like, you know what? <laughs> they just might not read the whole thing. So if I want them to remember something, I'm going to stick it where? In the center, right? So when they open up the scroll, they can read three sentences. They got it, right? So that's why the center is so important. But even more than just what the people saw, is quite often the center had the message from God and, and what J.R.R. Tolkien called the U-catastrophe. Again, the U-catastrophe defined by Tolkien himself is this, right? The point in the story when all hope is lost, when disaster seems certain, but then joy breaks through, catching the reader by surprise. Another time he said, it's the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, surprise twists you never see coming or expect. Like the story of Esther. You remember the story of Esther, right? She has a people who are in exile. They're under a foreign king. And though she is the, the consort or the queen, she has her people who are threatened 
by an inside enemy, not an outside enemy, inside enemy who wants to wipe out all the Jews, right? And the catastrophe of Esther, she has to make the decision, do I stand up for my people? Do I have faith in God? Do I go before this king who might kill me? And that's the catastrophe, in that you think all is lost. But she goes before the king and her people are saved, and Jewish people still celebrate that in Purim today. Or maybe you need a New Testament example, and it's, it's the story of the, 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 the lost sons, the prodigal sons, right? Where the son has this eureka moment, he's just like, you know what? <clears throat> I am eating what pigs eat. And I love this part of the story, because you ever imagine what pigs eat? It's fun, right? Like, there's a reason they call it slop, right? There's a reason, I don't know if you've ever been to a farm. Like, slop never sounds good, but I just want you to walk around a pig pen on a farm and be like, yes, this is slop. This is what we eat, right? And he's realizing that I'm eating what the pigs eat. But if I can just go back to my father, I know my father at least will treat me like a servant. He doesn't have to, to treat me like a son, but if I'm a servant, I at least know I won't eat slop, right? And a lot of people think that's the eucatastrophe, that's the turning point. It's not. Because all he's doing is coming to his senses. All he's doing is just like, life is terrible, it's got to be better than this, right? That's not amazing, right? If you were eating slop every day too, there might come a time where you're like, you know what? After day 347, I'm good on this slop. Maybe I should stop eating slop now. That's not that amazing, What's amazing is as he gets back on the road, his father had been waiting for him every single day. What's amazing is that the new catastrophe, the turn of the story, is that this father, who had been shamed by his son, cursed by his son, demeaned by his son, embarrassed by his son, sinned against by his son, has been waiting every single day. And this father is willing to put himself on this line, the reputation on the line, his family's name on the line, to not just wait for the son to come home, but to run and sprint after the son, to welcome him back in the community, put the robe on him, put the ring on his finger and said, you are mine, you belong to me. That's the you catastrophe. Or, or perhaps you, you read a little token. And like most of us, you didn't just watch the movies, you read the books. And you, when you read the books, you'll realize the eagles are good for something. Right? If you're in Philadelphia, you're like, I know, Hank, I know. Here comes the Eagles joke. It's almost football season. Prepare yourself. But when you read Tolkien, you'll find that Eagles are good for something. And whether it's in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, the Eagles actually swoop in to save the people at the time where all seems lost. So in Micah 4 to 5, we have this you catastrophe. This idea that all seems lost, but God is hope. And I have to confess to you, when I first started preparing for this service, I thought we were going to have Christmas in August, right? I'm like, this is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's like the Sunday school answer. What is the blah, blah, Jesus, right? No matter what the question is, you start with Jesus, because then the teacher got to look you in the eye and be like, how am I going to tell this child Jesus is wrong? You know? You give them their own little existential crisis while you figure out the question, you know? It gets a little tricky and like, who's the lady who goes before the king? And you're like, I want to say Jesus, but I don't think it's him, you know? But the idea here in Micah is when we get to 4 and 5, he's going to remind us. And if you've been tracking with us, you don't have to do a lot of uh, extrapolating, right? You don't have to do a lot of uh, imagination to be like, things are really hard, right? Like, things are not as they should be. But Micah wants to give us hope. He wants to give us hope even though we've been unfaithful. Even though we've earned God's judgment, even though the leaders, the rich, the prophets, they violated God's law. He wants to give us hope even though for generations the people have sinned against God and and really inherited these consequences. Even though the indictment is that they've been corrupt and unfaithful. He wants to give us hope because everything is hopeless. And that is the Christmas story. 
But I think greater than the Christmas story is Micah's story this morning. The reminder to us that if you're feeling despair, God is still hope. If you're feeling broken, God is still hope. If the world or your world is overwhelming, God is still hope. If you're feeling like you don't even know what tomorrow might bring, what this afternoon might bring, you can't trust anything, God is still hope. And while that's the story of Jesus, we don't just have to think about it at Christmas, because you'll see in Micah's story, it's not just about prophecies and warnings. It's some of these things coming to light. It's people losing all they can imagine. It's people feeling disconnected from God and from each other. Yet Micah proclaims hope. And what does the hope look like? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 4. I'll be reading the very first five verses, starting at verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And this is the Anabaptist anthem, right? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their very own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. No matter what this world gives us, no matter what we earn by what we do and don't do, no matter how unfaithful we've been, our God is still hope. And a reminder that if we remember who God is and what's coming ahead, we can get through today too. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your glorious future restoration. We thank you so much that in your promise to restore and to rebuild, you promise to restore and rebuild not just the world or creation and to set things right or to set nations right or to make people at peace, but Lord, you promise to set us right, to take the brokenness that's inside of us and heal it, to take the brokenness that's in our relationships and our families and heal it. To take the brokenness that's in our hearts and in our nations and heal it. Take the brokenness that's in our world and heal it. So God, we thank you this morning that though we are overwhelmed, you are never overwhelmed. Though we can't take it anymore, where we're weak, you're strong. Though we don't know where to turn, if we turn to you, our God of hope promises to come. So Lord, we ask you to enter in this morning. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, let us hear you, see you, feel you, be moved by you. Through the power of your love, Father, let us be comforted, held, secure, and just trusting you. And by the power of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, not only the promised one to come, but the one who has come and the one who promises to keep coming. Not just in eternity, but even in our despair, even in our disdain, even in our brokenness, even in our darkness, even in our world today. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen?
So Micah, Micah's um, a vision here in chapter 4 is very interesting. It's interesting because it actually is almost word for word from Isaiah's vision. And one of the things I learned this week is I've been calling this Isaiah's vision as if Isaiah invented it, right? So you've probably heard me say like John's revelation and Isaiah's vision. Then you get to Micah 4 and you're like, wait a second, this is tricky. Because this is word for word from Isaiah 2. Except Micah ends a little bit. He adds a, a different in verse 4. But it's basically word for word. What gets even trickier about that is that we said in the very beginning that Isaiah and, and Micah are contemporaries, right? So then you start asking, it's like, are they quoting a song? You know, did God like beam up the same exact vision and give it to them? What's going on here? I think what's going on here is what we said a couple weeks ago. That God will keep speaking even if we don't want to hear it. That God will raise you up and give you a word to speak. And if you don't speak it, someone else will. But also that God calls us all to our people. And though there were both prophets in, in Israel at the same time, Micah had his congregation, Isaiah had his congregation. And what a wonderful reminder that though we may be in Monrovia, Liberia, Monrovia, California, Bogota, New Jersey, or Bogota, uh, uh, Colombia, right? No matter where we are. Different congregations, different peoples. The word of the God that brings us together is the same. And I love that Isaiah and Micah have this vision of the mountain of the Lord. But what I love even more than the similar vision, it's just a simple reminder that we win in the end. There's so many of us who are sick and tired of being sick and tired. There's so many of us who can count the more ways we've lost than we've been winning lately. There's so many of us who see the brokenness in our world, in ourselves, in our people, and we're just tired of winning. So Micah wants us to know we win in the end. Not only does God promise to make it okay, God will reconcile all things to himself. God promises to restore, to rebuild, not just our hearts and our world, but also our faith. And what I love about this is that, you know, a lot of people struggle with, with Micah 4 and 5. Because we as Christians want to run to Micah 5 and be like, this is about Jesus. And it is. Or we want to read and we're just like, well, this is tricky because then there's, there's happy ending and then there's like war and taking away stuff and happy. And, and so a lot of people have all these theories about what's happening in four and five, right? A common one is that, you know, Micah just had a really good editor, right? Like there's people who came at different times and they pieced it together and this is what it looks like. And you're just like, well, I guess so, but that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> you know, it's just like that. I mean, that's good to know that technically, but it doesn't really help me at all. David Dorsey, who's one of my uh, uh, mentors at seminary, has something called the, the literary structure of the Old Testament. And in this literary structure, he introduces something called a chiastic structure. Now, for most of you, I've talked about this before, but I think it's important. The reason I think it's important is because we forget that the Bible wasn't just like, beam me up, Scotty. Like, it's, you didn't just sit there and like, download, spit out, right? Like, the Bible is actually this, this beautifully crafted document. Now, some of us think we, we get to that first level, we realize the, that the Bible is really a library, not just one book, right? Like that's the first level. But the second level, I think, or part of the second level is realizing that these books were written on purpose. I want you to hold that for a second, right? Meaning that how they were crafted matters. And we've said that if you want to look at it in common terms, it's like writing an email, well, it probably depends who you're emailing, is <laughs> very different, right, than writing a text message, which is very different than writing a letter, which is very different than writing an autobiography, which is very different than writing poetry, 
right? Which is very different than writing a screenplay. Every time you write something different, there's different structures that go behind it. And I think what Dorsey helps us see is that the structure matters. So when he puts together the four and five, he says, listen, there's about four things that are happening here, and you see them mirrored in Micah. And that's what a chiastic structure is, meaning that if something shows up here, it'll show up here too. And then here, and then here, and then here, and then here, and then you'll get to the middle. And that makes sense. Because if I'm going to open the scroll and get the most important thing, then as I pan out, you're going to scroll and have these things show up. You're like, what are you talking about? Let's do some chiastic structure this morning, right? The first thing that you'll see mirrored in Micah is that he crafts this, this literary classic using chiastic structure. Again, when Micah's writing, he's not just predicting the, the, the past or predicting the future to come. We believe that Micah not only talks about 500 years of sin, but he's probably in ministry safely 10, 20 years, just in chapter 1. So there's a good chance he's on year 30 or 40 by the time you get to 4 and 5. Why does that matter? It matters because some of the things he prophesied in verse 1 or chapter 1 are starting to happen. Micah has lived long enough to be like, if we don't turn to God, they're going to come and take over us. He's lived long enough to see the northern kingdom extinguished. He's lived long enough to see the Assyrians rise up in power. He's lived long enough to see the Babylonians start to rise up. And again, when we talked about this, we said like, that's like Canada and Mexico coming for us, right? But he's lived long enough to actually see these things, right? And so he's seen war. He's seen threat of war. He's seen threat of civil war. He's seen destruction. Yet he wants to call the people back to the vision of God. And he does it in this literary classic chiastic structure. Why is that important? Remember in chapter one, when he was given the warnings, he had play on words, right? For every single city, he had play on words. That's when I was like, it's like the equivalent of being like, Mechanicsburg, the robots will come get you, right? Hershey, you will die by diabetes, right? Like he's doing, I'm sorry, it's just, it came to me, right? You know, came to me. But that's what he's doing, right? He's using the names of these places to talk about the destruction to come. But here in the chiastic structure, Micah breaks it down like this in 4 and 5. The first thing that he'll say twice, right? First in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and then the end of chapter 5, 9 to 14, is that God will reign over all the nations. No matter what's happening in the world, in the end, our God will reign. And what God's reign looks like is very different than the empires of this world. The empires of this world are, are conquered. You die for them. You bleed for them. You steal for them. You kill for them. Yet in God's reign, what we use for war has been turned into peace. The war machinery has been destroyed. The nations of the world, instead of us going to them to come to God, they will come to learn. And in Micah 4, which we'll get into the chapter, they come to learn the ways of God. But at the end of Micah chapter 5, all idolatry is ended. They stop worshiping other gods and stop worshiping themselves, and all idolatry is ended. So the first thing that gives us hope is that God will reign over all the nations. The second movement you'll see in these two chapters is that there's good news. There's good news for people who are faithful to God. And he calls them the remnant. And you see this in chapter 4, 6, and 7, and then in chapter 5, 4 to 9, is that if you're faithful to God, God sees it. That if you're faithful to God, God knows it. And then here's the thing, and it might be a little bit heartbreaking, but maybe it wakes us up. The thing is, God knows we're not all going to be faithful. And so the message here is not just to all of God's people. It's like, listen, some of y'all will fail me. Some of y'all will fall short. Some of y'all will not be faithful. 
But to those of you who are faithful, those of you he calls the remnant, God will make you strong. God will raise you up. God will promise victory over all. And the third thing, which gets to the Jesus part, the Sunday school part, is that there's a ruler that will come by Bethlehem and to Bethlehem. And you see this in, in 4, 8 to 10 and 5, 1 to 5. And I think this is interesting because both passages or both frameworks, he talks about the, 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 the present suffering is like a woman in labor. And I've never been a woman in labor. I've only seen it many times. I can only imagine. I say that to say that because it's weird to be as a man talking about a woman in labor. But I'm using my imagination. That's what we're doing this morning, right? But I think it's a beautiful analogy that he chooses to use. Because what comes from the pain and the struggle is life. And it's beautiful, and it's life. And what I love about this is that when he picks Bethlehem, we may sing this little star of Bethlehem and, and how Jesus comes from Bethlehem. You know what the equivalent of this is, right? This is like somebody saying, oh, the ruler will come from Harrisburg. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense as a state capital. I mean, I would have picked Philadelphia, but, I mean, you go to Harrisburg. You're like, no, 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 not just Harrisburg, but Oberlin. You're like, where is that? And I'm like, I don't even know, but they tell me it's over the hill over there somewhere, right? Like somewhere over there, right? There's like three people I know live in Oberlin. I'll get yelled at at the door. But it's the point I'm making. It's still legit, right? Like y'all know where Oberlin is. The rest of us don't, right? That's the significance of Bethlehem here. And of all the things that's happening, he doesn't just pick Jerusalem. He doesn't pick, you know, Samaria. He doesn't pick any of the big cities that are known. He picks Bethlehem. Why? Because it's the city of David. And so Micah is saying, listen, we're losing our kings. We're losing our land. We're losing our country. We've lost our connection from God, but God won't fail us. In fact, our greatest king is David, and God promises to send us a king who will be greater than David. And the fruit of that labor is going to be God's redeemer, who not only repaints this vision, but makes it possible that our connection will never be broken with God. And so the fourth and the center section of this Micah 4 and 5 is that if you feel hopeless, God is your hope. And I think that's something we can all hold on to this morning, whether or not we're in Micah's time or in 2022. If you feel hopeless, let God be your hope. And so the passage I read Verses 4, 1 to 5 is in that beginning section of God reigning over the nations. But the reason I picked this is because Micah is calling us to not just look for tomorrow, but to live for today. He starts off by saying our focus has to be moved, not just on the now, but to later. We've talked about this before. It was a couple years ago when I preached, and I was like, it's so important for us as Christians not to be like the rest of the world and only looking down on ourselves. Because if you look down on yourselves, your purview is fairly limited, right? You can't see what's around you. You can't see what's in front of you, what's behind you, what's this way or this way. And you certainly can't see what's coming down from God to you, right? So the work of the Christian is to look up. So what Micah does is he moves us from the current situation of war and rumors of war and destruction and loss. And he says, I want you to think about the end because in the end, God's presence and temple will be established forever. And we miss that, right? Because God's presence and temple is now us, right? God lives inside of us. But for people who are refugees in their own land, for people who've been taken over and seen greater powers rise up, for people who, who've lost everything they could, they could imagine, God promises God's presence. And we can hold on to that. 
Because even though we may be the temples of the Holy Spirit, even though we know God's presence lives inside of us and in the community around us, we too need to be reminded that God promises his presence. And I love, 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 love that when God calls his people back to him, it's not just for Israel, it's for the world. Because what Micah promises here is that not only will God raise up Israel, but all peoples will be drawn to God here. And you've heard me say this before. I love when people are like, your church is cute. This diversity thing, it's so cool, like so cutting edge. I'm like, it's new, right? It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation, but it's very new, right? And I love that when God repurposes his people and dreams about the future, it's a future where all nations come to God. Many nations come and they learn God's ways. But the difference here that Micah says in the work that we do today is not only to teach others about God's ways, but we are to live by God's ways. That's the work we're doing now, right? We could dream about the day to come. But right now, are you learning God's ways? Are you living by God's ways? Because the desire is for Zion and Jerusalem to be the center. But what is the center for us but Jesus Christ? And I love the passage, right? Like I said, it's the Mennonite or the Anabaptist National Anthem. We will beat our swords in the plowshares, our spears in the pruning hooks. War is abandoned and not trained for. I love that when God restores this world, it doesn't mean <laughs> there will be no conflict which is good for me because I grew up in a family where if you didn't have conflict, you didn't know if they loved you. You know, it's just like, are you depressed, mother? Are you okay? Like, is everything all right, right? But I love that what God promises is to step in as a judge that's actually to provide and protect all people. And that's one significance you'll see from God's kingdom and the empires of this world. The empires of this world, at their best, take care of who they find as citizens. God, at his always, defines all of you as his, and his desire is to take care of all of us. And what, what, what Isaiah misses, or what Micah maybe adds, or maybe Isaiah just fell asleep at this part, is this chapter of verse 4. And I want to read this, because I think this is significant. What God promises in the world to come is that everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid. The Lord Almighty has spoken. In that culture, to have your own vine and fig tree was to know that your future is protected. The land was yours. Provision is yours. You don't have to worry about your family. You don't have to worry about anyone taking it because even in the law of God, if someone took that land or you gave that land to someone, after Jubilee, it would come back to you. What God promises is provision for God's people. What God calls us to do is to follow him forever, trusting not just for the nations, not just for the peoples, but for all of us, that in the end, he will provide. And so when I thought about, you know, this section and, and this, this center, why is it important? It's important because it's so easy for us to focus on ourselves and what we can see. We may know that the world is greater than what we see. We may know that God is working even if we don't see it. We may know that what we see isn't all there is. But Micah wants us to know that you can't lose sight that all you see is all you see. You can't lose sight 
that you're limited by why you can't or what you can see. And I'm not just saying this to be, you know, existential and deep, right? But the idea here is we're all limited from our purview. But praise God that God's not limited. And praise God that even though you can only see what you can see, God's willing to take that to not only enhance it, but to make it part of this bigger puzzle. Because we must never forget that our purpose of God's people is to point the world to him. So while we complain about the world not being as it should be, are we willing to tell people what God's kingdom looks like? Are we willing to live not just in this broken world, but pointing people to a light of a kingdom to come? Because if what we can see is only what we can see, what about the people who don't know God? They can't even see. And that's the importance of not only knowing your light and taking your light and shining it, because God desires you to remember your purpose, and your purpose is to point others to him. But I think just very practically in this section, I am glad, I'm ecstatic, we are blessed. We should be grateful that God's mercy triumphs over our present every single time. God's mercy will always triumph over your struggle, over your pain, over your illness, over your brokenness. God's mercy will always triumph over your present. And I know it's hard. You know, I've walked in this last year with people who are battling severe, severe illnesses. And it's hard to wake up in the morning and not know what the day will be because you don't know what your mind will do to you. It's hard to wake up and want to believe, but you just can't. It's hard to wake up and know that not only is life hard, but today might be harder than yesterday was, and yesterday was awfully hard. But God's mercy triumphs over our present. And I think that's what Micah wants us to know, that the center, the you catastrophe, is that when we feel hopeless, our God is hope. When we feel broken, our God is hope. When we feel like the darkness is winning, our God is hope. When we feel Like there's no redemption left for this world or for ourselves or for our relationships. Our God is hope. So when we ask Jesus to come, we're not just talking about the little baby in Bethlehem. We're asking God to enter into the despair, into the brokenness, into the pain, into the darkness. And I love, love, love that our God is willing to do that with us and for us. When we sing, come, Lord Jesus, come, may it be our prayer, not just in Christmas season, may it be our prayer in our despair, in our depression, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our unfaithfulness, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. We're going to close um, singing, Come the How Long Expected Jesus. And as we sing the song, 
I want us to maybe dream of Christmas, right? And all, all the parents are like, Hank, it's August. Don't start this. And I'm like, I got two, too. So it's like, we're all losing. Just go with it, right? Like, we're, we're doing the Christmas thing. That's, just go, right? But as we sing this song, I want us to be reminded of what Micah was in, right? He's in a place of being so overwhelmed with his people so broken, so disconnected from God, with them losing everything. And yet he says, I need us to turn to God who is our hope. And so my prayer for all of us is that no matter what we're facing this morning, no matter what's overwhelming us, no matter what's humbling us, or no matter what's breaking us, or, or even, and I think this is even more beautiful, no matter what we've done that has broken us or broken others, no matter how we failed or been unfaithful, our God is hope. And so when we sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, yes, the baby came, but praise God, the baby grew up to Jesus Christ. Praise God that Jesus Christ isn't just up in heaven making it perfect for you, that he's willing to enter in to you being overwhelmed, but to all of us and the world not being as it should be. But praise God that we're all called not only to see the future vision of hope, but to hold on to it and to share it. So maybe as we sing, that's your prayer, right? God, help me to hold on to hope. God, help me to bring hope. God, help me to be your hope to my world. Let's stand and sing together.